0: Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
1: Welcome to FYI, ARK Invests, podcast covering everything in the world of innovation. Today we have a very special guest. He's Azim Azar, an early stage investor in Europe, and also the founder of a very popular and influential newsletter called Exponential View that is now also a podcast. Azim, welcome to the ARC podcast.
2: I'm so excited to be here because I've been a huge fan of the research that's come out of your firm over the last couple of years. So I'm really honored to be on this podcast.
1: Awesome. We're glad you're enjoying the output. You're based in London and you've started a newsletter a while back, really covering everything we're interested in, which is why I think we have so much interest aligned. It's called Exponential View, which is kind of how we think about where the world's headed as well. Could you tell us about what gave you the idea for the newsletter How you've evolved its content and format over the years, and how many people are reading it now on a weekly basis?
2: Thank you. So, yeah, the newsletter is going to be four years old in March 2019. And I started it off the back of having built a startup for about seven years. And during that seven years, I've been staring at this one problem like a maniac, which is what founders have to do. And so after it was acquired and I was sort of sitting in the acquirer, a SaaS company called Brandwatch, I started to think I need to spread my intellectual horizons a little bit. And, and I thought starting a newsletter where I committed to something every week would be a good way to discipline that exploration. So I emailed 20 friends. And then four years later, we're approaching 40,000 readers um, every week. So it's grown pretty well. And as you mentioned, in that time, I've launched a podcast. I've also launched a subscription membership service as well. So it's starting to look a little bit like a business. But I think I just hit the zeitgeist as well. And the zeitgeist was there's so much happening in technology. What the hell does it mean to the real economy? What does it mean to real society? What does it mean to how we're really gonna live our lives? And having been trained in philosophy and economics and politics, I was able to bring that lens together with my professional training as a technologist and just as sort of an early stage hanger on -er and bring those things together, telling the technologists more than they had probably thought about in terms of politics and economics and telling people who are not from the technology domain more than they had, had access to about these quite remarkable technologies.
1: That's very interesting. It's really kind of an intersection of ideas, which is what we try to focus on at Arc as well. And of course, many people have, I think, purebred or vertical-focused newsletters, and they do very well. But having this multi-view world, I think, is very helpful. You have some very interesting and influential people reading your newsletter. Who are some of those people?
2: Well, it has been quite something. So, you know, I think The nature of a newsletter is that it starts with the people who are close to your community. And so the people who I emailed were my friends, and these are people who've been involved in the tech industry for a long time. So we do have a lot of the great and the good from the venture capital world and the startup world, people who have founded companies like Spotify and LinkedIn, people at venture firms like um, Union Square Ventures and Andreessen Horowitz and NEA and Index Ventures. And partly that started off as the the seed crystal, but as it's grown essentially by word of mouth, I have found that I have this really intriguing audience, which also reaches the academics who are looking at dimensions like what's the future of work or how should education change or ethicists but also to policymakers more than a dozen legislators from national parliaments or assemblies subscribe I have at least one bishop who's a subscriber and a lot of people from kind of corporate development corporate strategy and corporate innovation teams and so I think that the reflection of the content itself which is that it's very broad the connections that I try to draw are broad. I rely on people like you, James, to give me the depth that I need has been reflected in a very broad interdisciplinary audience. And it's one which I think is really helpful because whenever I need a perspective on something, I can normally find both the scientist working on the research and the ethicist who is concerned with the impact of that research, which I think gives an added twist uh, angle to the way I look at the question.
1: That's awesome. What's the most interesting connection or maybe most impactful way that your newsletter has affected one of your readers? Someone has must have contacted you, reached back and said, thanks to this newsletter or this piece of news, I actually decided to do X, Y, O, Z.
2: That's the, one of the things that gives you the most pleasure as somebody who spends time doing this. So there have been a few investment deals that have taken place, uh, angels meeting startups through the newsletter. There have been a few people who have said to me, I've left my job at X, to pursue why. And I'm really happy for it. And I've seen a number of authors produce books, and they've sent me a copy of their books and said, I thanked you, because you helped me develop my thesis. So that's really been some of the impact that I've personally had. As I said, it's also about the zeitgeist. I mean, I think that the balance of how we think about technology has changed over the last five years. And while I was a little bit early in 2015, in terms of calling for you know, asking questions about whether we should be so positive about technology in all its forms, in particular looking at Facebook and so on. Four years later, there are lots and lots of really smart people not only asking that question, but actually implementing the implications of that question. Uh, and I've just been lucky to be part of that wave. I mean, you always want to um, catch a rising tide.
1: Yes, yes. I think definitely you are one of the earliest ones to really raise those points. And I'll plead guilty as one of the blitheful... People who are just looking at all these things with optimistic, starry eyes, and you know what could possibly go wrong, and we've certainly found what could possibly go wrong in the last two years or so.
2: If I want to mention something that I was just reflecting with a friend who's an investor yesterday. That it was in late 2013 that he said to me over a coffee. He said, yeah, "Mark my words, Azim. The regulators are going to come after Facebook, and they're going to come after them really, really hard." Uh, and that was the first time that I had heard someone give me the pithy observation that Facebook would get hammered. And this was a pretty successful private investor. And I think the thing that we always need to bear in mind is that these companies and these innovations exist within this broad dynamic of the economy. And the economy has lots of vested interests that are just outside of what comes out of technology. So in a sense, people like you and I were a bit naive, perhaps not to think about the side effects of what was going on for many, many years, because it's natural. It's always been the case. That is a push and pull. That's why oil companies and health pharma companies have had lobbyists in Washington for decades.
1: That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. While we're on that topic, maybe, what do you think, since we've talked retrospectively, the Facebook thing has happened, looking forward, where do you see actually a lot of regulatory risk that people are perhaps not taking seriously enough?
2: I mean, I think it's, it's clear that the question about privacy and data use and the rights that get assigned to personal data are going to become much, much more important. And I think that we've got GDPR and the e-privacy directive in Europe. There's even a framework in China that was announced in the last few months. And we've got the Californian laws that are coming out that look similar in some ways to GDPR. So the privacy one, I think, is going to be very, very critical. What we haven't yet seen is anything around how the technology of face recognition is going to be regulated. And there are lots and lots of calls for facial recognition and then by extension, biometric recognition to need to come under some kind of regulatory blanket. And I I imagine that we will see a little bit of a tussle around that in the next couple of years.
1: That's interesting. In China, that's simply being implemented at scale without really any discussion of regulation. Of course, that country doesn't need to have a discussion about these kinds of things. But in the West, I'd imagine with technology rollouts like Amazon Go, where the stores determine what you buy purely based on computer vision, that sounds like a debate that is going to be had. And that could have some very interesting consequences.
2: Yeah, I think it really could. We have to be very careful about where we draw these lines because it's not just around facial recognition, it's about what happens on the margins of that of facial recognition where people might start to make predictions about your future behavior and then connect back to a facial recognition system. And so I think predictive policing is a particular area around this where police forces in the UK and in the United States have been rolling out predictive policing systems. These systems are not being built by the very best technology companies with the very best data scientists. And I'm not sure if they're going through the level of rigor and testing that, say, a pharmaceutical might have to. So we have no idea what kind of implicit bias or problems these systems are going to going to create. When you then chain that to facial recognition or gait recognition, that gait being how people walk, you then create quite a potent brew where, just by a snap of you through a cctv camera we've then tagged your likely future behavior probably inaccurately for the rest of the day or the rest of the week and that could really start to have an impact on on you and i think we know how this will play out right it will play out like every one of these technologies played out previously which it will mean it will disadvantage those on the margins and the periphery of society this is not a technology that is going to catch white-collar multi-billionaire tax launderers This is a kind of technology that will be used to generally impact the worse off because that's often how we've rolled these things out.
1: Over 20 million Chinese people have already been banned from buying train tickets due to their social credit system. I certainly presume those are not the Robin Lees of the world. Those are just normal people.
2: I think that the Chinese example with social credit is a really good lens for us to ask about the extent to which we in the US or in the UK are prepared for the implications of these very, very powerful technologies. Governments have always tried to nudge us through incentives. That's what tax is about, right? You you get a tax break to save in a pension so that you get encouraged to save in a pension. It's a pretty clumsy tool, but it is a tool designed to nudge our behavior now these ai systems with much better data visibility are coming out they're on the same spectrum as taxes and fines and other types of incentives and low-cost loans for student tuition fees and so on they're just much more powerful and they're, they're integrated into the very systems that we use to access our world, right, the smartphone. And so we're going to have to ask some pretty hard questions about where we draw that line, because that line was previously drawn by the limits of the technology. The technology is now increasingly unlimited. So we have to ask the ethical question of where do we want that line to be? And I don't think we've in the UK, certainly we haven't figured that out. In some ways in the US, I suspect you're in a similar boat.
1: Yeah, that's, I think, going to be an ongoing debate. Given your location and perspective based in Europe, I would love to talk a little bit about European technology, and then we can maybe go on to talk more about the future in general, where we are in the innovation cycle. I find Europe's position in the world in terms of technology, both sad and fascinating at the same time. There are two famous slides, memorable slides for me from this year's Mary Meeker deck, internet trends deck and it's you know the world's top 20 internet companies or technology companies by market capitalization Last year, I think it was mostly US with a handful of Chinese. This year is 11 US companies, nine Chinese companies, zero European companies. If you don't restrict it to technology companies and include just everything, I think two years ago, Europe had Nestle and Roche in there, both Swiss companies, but those are the only two represented. One makes medicine, one makes candy. So that is such a huge turn when you consider the fact that the source material for so much of our technology came from the Enlightenment in Europe you know, 500 years ago, the Industrial Revolution in England 300, 400 years ago. And now they're literally nowhere to be seen at the top of the ladder. Why do you think this has happened? Let's just start there.
2: That is a question that has been asked in the 25 years I've been involved in this industry and I've been going to internet and venture conferences in in Europe since uh, 96 really. It's the same question. Let's maybe level set for listeners. US venture capital annually is in the region of about $150 billion investments per year. Europe last year, including Israel, we did about $25 billion for a similar population, and slightly bigger population, so six times less. VC went in and as you've pointed out, the average Average exits are substantially lower than in the US. You know, there are some outliers. So Israel has a much higher level of venture dollars per capita than even the US and Estonia, little old Estonia is heading towards the level of the US, but Estonia is a couple of million people. So it's just a tiny market. And I think the primary reason has changed over time. And let me try to step through this. So the U.S. was early in developing its venture capital market as an asset class, as a style of investing. Um, It really kicked off in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. And as a result, it had something of a head start. It also had a much larger national market. So the point at which Apple and Cisco were growing as businesses in the late 70s and early 80s, Europe was still a very disaggregated market. At the time, Europeans were still trying to build local technology winners, whether it was Minitel in France, or even their own operating systems, ultimately losing out to the the Windows platform. And so once that you got that lead, you got the natural effect of agglomeration or rich get richer, which was if you were bright and brilliant working in technology, you would somehow get out from Europe to Silicon Valley, either as an entrepreneur or because Oracle or Netscape moved you over. So the talent started to go into Europe. And the size of the US market just meant that you could build a much larger company out there and then acquire what you needed to in Europe and over time that ecosystem in the US that highly fertile axis that runs from Stanford University professors founding companies going back to professorship encouraging their students to do the same Menlo Park you know Sand Hill Road has got denser and denser and denser and the market size has stayed in favor of the bay area relatively speaking so the things that give the us its advantage now are slightly different than the ones that gave it its advantage 25 years ago but they've been built up through this path of dependence. China's a different situation. I mean China is just this state directed capitalism, a huge market. And um, I've worked with a few Chinese entrepreneurs in the last year or two and I'm just blown away by their aggression, creativity, willingness to throw the rulebook out in order to win. I mean, it is uh, Kai Fu Li, the sort of wonderful Chinese investor, describes it as a gladiatorial combat. I mean, it it makes gladiators look a little bit peacenick, frankly. I mean, it's quite something. So while we have matured and improved our ecosystem, and it is vastly improved and you can point to groups like Seedcamp and Index Ventures and many other funds in coming out of London and, and elsewhere. It's vastly improved. It's much, much richer. I think the challenge that we still have is one that relates to the breadth of expectation and support that you get from the ecosystem more broadly and the size of the market and the size of the the public markets, and therefore the maturity, I mean, when we think of huge companies of much later stage capital, investment banking analysts, technology teams within the iBanks who have the experience of covering huge businesses. So what's considered a huge business in technology in Europe is something with an enterprise value of, you know, two, three, four, five billion $5 billion. That's sort of a late stage startup in China.
1: Yes, that's just, that is incredible context. So if I try to, I guess, retell what you just said, two primary factors, one is the US had a head start. And of course, we know just from law laws compounding, when you have a head start multi-decade, that, that makes a huge difference. And Europe is really not one market from the perspective of a founder. It is a multiple markets with their own languages, localization requirements, and in some cases, regulatory requirements. So it's not as just calling it Europe is really masking the complexity of the go-to-market in Europe. How much do you think the cultural element plays Paul Graham, founder of YC, has written extensively about kind of the attitudes to wealth and to success in Europe and among European, I guess, workers. And you've mentioned kind of just just how they view what a large company is supposed to be. Is, Is it 100x different than it's in US and China? Do you think cultural attitudes are a first order explanation for any of these things?
2: I do believe that cultural attitudes make a real difference. And I think one of the starkest contrasts is between, say, attitudes, I'll give you one example, in China towards large technology companies and those in the UK and US. So over the last couple of years, the trust and faith in Facebook has fallen off a cliff in the UK and the US. But the trust and faith in WeChat in China has gone up. And I think the reason is, you think about where you've come from. In China, technology is closely related to coming out of grinding rural poverty. And WeChat is a tremendous enabler in all sorts of services you can now get. Whereas we have a different perspective of what Facebook, for sake of argument, has done to us. And so that optimism then has a a knock-on impact, I think, on how people are going to feel about the work they do. So I think Paul Graham is making lots of sensible points to point out an underlying cultural bias towards the kind of success that you want to have if you're going to measure it by scale. Again, I do think that you can see a significant change. And I know of many, many European founders who are building companies with the Same discipline and ambition as anyone you would find in the US. Two examples in the UK would be Rishi Kostler, who runs a bank called Oak North that uses a lot of machine learning, and Tom Blomfeld, who runs a consumer bank called Monzo. You know, you can't look at those guys and say, well, you do have as much ambition as anyone else in the world and as much capability as anyone else in the world. Do we have as many people like that as you'll find in the US? I don't think so. Do we have all the support infrastructure that I think does grow from the correct culture? I don't think we do either.
1: I think a lot of those needs were perhaps more localized before. One point that Paul Grahams made is that in the US, you've had many great examples of what success looks like. And that gives the confidence for founders to be like, oh, I could be like that as well. Whereas in Europe, not so much. But with the internet, with everyone being connected on Twitter, and with funding basically becoming more and more international, couldn't a startup in Berlin or London today, why would they not have the same attitudes to global success and reaching a $100 billion in market cap as their US peers?
2: I think they do increasingly have that attitude. And I think when I identified things in the system that held them back, a lot of it also related to the level of expert capital that was available. So did you have seed funds who understood what the seed journey was? I'm a venture partner at a seed fund called Kindred, which when we started, there were only three or other four funds like us focused on the founder journey seed to series A. There are now more than a dozen in Europe, but then it came into later stage capital. So does the later stage capital that's writing the 50 to 100, 200 million dollar checks understand what it is to back a business like this? In Europe, what you often had to do was go to private equity, not late stage venture capital, which was problematic. And I think the best example of why we may be turning a corner, which you've alluded to, is that some of the very, very best U.S. firms are now looking for scouts in europe because they understand there's really deep technical talent so this is not simply a case of saying we want to buy the biggest x in europe it's saying we think there's a team doing something exceptional in quantum computing or exceptional in visual perception or in computational biology that is world-class exceptional And we're a Series B or Series C fund and we're going to write a 50, 150, 200 million dollar check into this company, even though we're based in the US. That didn't used to happen. But I mean, you know, think back, it was maybe a decade now since Sequoia put, I think it was more than 100 million dollars into a Swedish payments company called Klarna because they saw a globally competitive founding team. Uh, and that's happening more and more. And, and the reality is valuations are a little bit depressed in Europe compared to the US. Talent is not as flighty as it is in Silicon Valley, and people are not paid as well. So you can get you know more bang for your buck. And, and I think we will see more and more of that. But I have to say that is also cyclical. You know, There have gone through phases where the US firms have shown up wanting to do deals, they've done a bunch of deals, and then they It hasn't worked out or the domestic markets have become more exciting and they've gone back but right now we're certainly in a phase where larger later stage us investors are in europe more frequently looking for deals
1: i see last question on this and we can move on prediction in some future mary meeker slide of the same nature do you believe there will be one or more european companies that's in the top 20 list in market capitalization that's not a Swiss candy company
2: okay that is a really mean question james um In the next five years, there are one or two interesting businesses in the fintech space, which I think might be able to do really, really well because it's a hard market to be in. Europe has got some regulatory passporting, and there are a couple of teams who are really, I've, I've alluded to a couple already, but there are some others who are doing really, really well, and you don't have an advantage as a U.S. bank startup trying to come over to Europe. So I think in that area, we might see one or two really stellar successes. But getting on that Merrimeka list is not just a function of being brilliant yourself. You have to outrun the bear. And so the U.S. founders and the Chinese founders are also going to be fighting to build bigger and bigger companies. As to whether one of these European superstars can get on that list is as much a function of what happens with the Chinese and the Americans.
1: Okay, well, we have Spotify as kind of a decent example of how that could end up. I'm so glad that company exists. I'm super excited to see what comes out of Europe in the next round. Can
2: I just say something about Spotify on this? Because I love the management team there. And I really love the product, you know, use it all the time. The thing that I love about them is if you spend time talking to Daniel, I've been able to do this in the last year or two, who runs it. I mean, he's just such a wonderful erudite European founder who's built this multi-decker billion-dollar business. He does sound very differently, different to his peers in the U.S. who are kind of American founders who built businesses like that. It's, it's really nice. I would love to see more of that.
1: Me too. Let's talk about the innovation cycle. Your newsletter and podcast is called Exponential View. So I assume you have a view on the exponential growth of certain things that's coming up. In the past four years since you've curated this newsletter, what is, I guess, the list of technologies that have, I guess, selected themselves in your mind as most interesting that have kind of the growth curves ahead of them, similar to what we've witnessed with the internet and, and some of the other exciting technologies we have today.
2: We all remember Moore's Law and the thing that struck me about Moore's Law is that it was one it was one exponentially improving relationship that created trillions of dollars of value and today we have a whole bunch of different ones and you know we have the the one that relates to the cost of genome sequencing, we have ones that relate to that are now even in a way post Moore's Law-ish so specific chip hardware for machine learning, which is improving year on year faster than Moore's Law ever did. But one that I find really fascinating is what's happening with um, Earth observation satellites. So 10 years ago, putting a satellite in space was something that a government had to do. And these satellites were huge. They were the size of two SUVs. And now because of the smartphone dividend, we've got them down to the size of like a milk carton. They're much cheaper And we've done some pretty clever things. We've said that, well, in space, you have lots of cosmic rays and cosmic rays mess up with electronics. You normally had to shield your satellites with all sorts of metals, but that made them heavier and bigger and more expensive to get out of Earth's gravitational pull. So instead, we will use abundant processing power to error correct using machine learning the errors created by the cosmic rays hitting these cheap smartphone CPUs. And so the boom in nanosats has meant that we've gone from a few dozen satellites roaming around the earth pointing their cameras back at the planet to several hundred, soon to be several thousand. The result of that exponential growth has been a rapid decline in the cost and availability of real-time multispectral imagery at 20 centimetre resolution of any point in the planet. You can just go to Planet Labs or Orbital Insight and buy an image of your back garden for a few dollars. And I think that is one of the most exciting things that we have seen, because the use of this sort of space imaging, the number of developers who would start their day thinking, how do I improve the user experience by using space imaging, has for decades been zero. And now it can be thousands. And I think once developers get their hands on this, we'll start to see some really, really interesting applications. Two that I've seen in the last couple of weeks. One has been an anti-slavery application where people have used real-time imaging of industrial areas in India to try to find factories being worked on by slaves. And the second actually was also in India was a commercial imaging lab identifying how well India's recent strikes on Islamic militants in Pakistan had gone and doing the bomb damage assessment for a few dollars, right, which is something that normally you had to rely on the NSA or the uh, National Reconnaissance Office to do for you. So I'm pretty excited about the space exponential curve because it leverages and delivers a whole set of new data that we we don't have. But the other one that you just can't ignore is the the gene sequencing one because that has so many opportunities both from healthcare but also when applied to machine learning starting to accelerate the process of directed evolution within homo sapiens as a species
1: wow i love those two examples especially the one on imaging because it's it's something that i've certainly read about but never heard in in that level of detail and it's interesting because it doesn't sound like it's exciting like Moore's law but those things always feel like that in the beginning. If, if it's obvious, it's, it's already probably wrong, right? It always comes from unexpected places. And this sounds different enough that it could just be really big. Although you really have to push your mind into thinking, how does this become a really valuable business model, and you can actually generate a huge amount of revenue from that. I guess basically what you're getting is almost like YouTube flyovers as a service, where it's gone from hundreds of thousands of dollars to dollars. And the responsibility is now up to the developers and the business entrepreneurs to figure out what you could actually do with it.
2: So what I found interesting is I've dug into that area a little bit is I found a handful of hedge funds who have admitted that over the past three or four years, they've been buying data from these commercial satellite companies and using it to understand macro indicators. So how heavily laden are the oil tankers leaving a port um, by looking at the shadow of the tanker or how deep it seems to be using machine vision on it and then using that as a way of trading on the global markets. There's obviously a very public case study from one of the vendors where someone counted the number of cars in the JCPenney parking lot and demonstrated that it was a four-week leading indicator on the JCPenney stock price. More cars, higher stock price a month later. So there's a whole bunch of things that you could imagine. I think what's interesting is the level of tension it creates around the particular area, which is nation states and their own sort of expressions of power projection. We've had to rely on the fog of war and whatever spy agencies have chosen to release to us about what's going on. And they won't have that informational advantage in four or five years' time. And I'll be really curious to see how that changes the nature with which they conduct that kind of diplomacy and and saber-rattling. It has surprised me that the major media networks have not gone to these companies to say, listen, just give us photographs of what's happening on the Ukrainian border, or show us what's happening in in and around Raqqa, or show us what's happening in Kashmir or the Straits of Malacca, or in the Venezuelan-Colombian border, because they could do it. But I think it's just up to the developers to give them the tools and the products that allow them to get access to that information.
1: If we try to think about the endpoint, I'm just trying to play this out to the end. Like cameras, we started off with low-resolution cameras, and now it's just... Your iPhone can shoot 4K video and your TV can play 4K video. Isn't the endpoint of this live video feed for any location on Earth? That you can just open up in a browser at cost that's near zero
2: that probably is the end point as you know ccds follow a relationship called hendy's law typically been about a 50 to 60 percent improvement in ccd pixel density on a ccd every year now i think that that's a, a going to reach its own physical limits if it hasn't already we'll remember that happened with semiconductors and denard scaling there's little reason to assume that we won't continue to be able to pack better and better resolution cameras at a lower cost in these nanosats. And we're already at a point where commercial nanosats can get to 20 to 30 centimeter resolution. Commercial satellites, not commercial nanosats, sorry, nanosats are not quite there. So yes, I think you're right. I mean, I think real time video feeds of any point in the planet available on a commercial marketplace would be, a, you know, within a few years reach.
1: Interesting. None of these two things you described is really in the core, call it computer technology. They leverage it, certainly, but they're not things like e-commerce or 5G. Is there anything interesting in the core market, so to speak, coming up? Or this is just kind of a symptom of that's immaturity, and that's why we're looking at things that appear novel?
2: The reality is that this is a little bit like a kind of tide that gets kept in by a strong wind and the next tide comes in on top of it and the next tide over that and it leads to the flooding of the lowlands these curves are not slowing down so even as we think that we've reached the limit of moore's law which you know intel kind of renounced a couple of years ago we switched to architectural optimizations we moved from cpus to gpus which you know very well with your nvidia heritage and now to these tpus and they're they're getting bigger and better but now we're getting to the stage where in core technology, we've gone off and said, look, we've got infinite processing back in the cloud, but the cloud is 320 milliseconds away. And I need processing locally. And so we're now seeing lots of innovation in edge ICs, in semiconductors, so that you can do both inference and training of machine learning locally on the edge, wherever the intelligence is, is required. And that then requires an incredible stack of changes. You need software to manage The training and the learning and quality control and patches and upgrades of all these edge intelligences. You have to figure out how to control them and turn them off. And no one's really done that at any huge scale. So I think there are still really exciting things that are going to happen in kind of core compute fabric where while we've seen this tremendous growth of the cloud, I suspect that relatively speaking, the, what the edge does over the next 10 years to the cloud is going to increase significantly. And then hiding behind that, we also have quantum computing, which we need to think about when that becomes mainstream. So I think the thing that makes my trying to keep track of this and why I rely so heavily on the output of ARK Invest is that there are so many different themes that are unfolding at the moment, and they do all play into each other.
1: That's certainly one of our core beliefs. And that's why we kind of look at all three of them and the three that we started the firm with and, and how they intersect. Uh, the, the analysts sit next to each other and, and we bat this out every day. On your point about computing moving to the edge, I've always found this debate a little putting things in an adversarial relationship when they are not. Like the compute performance improvement in the cloud and edge or on the device, I think, have increased in parallel. The iPhone today is hundreds of times more powerful than the iPhone that originally launched. And the AWS services are also hundreds of times faster. There's always been a need for local compute. You do the image processing, of course, locally. You don't want to send that to the cloud to change your exposure or anything like that. And I think they will continue to improve in lockstep. There's just the fact that Apple can charge us thousands of dollars for a personal computer, I think really says to the fact that, you know, people have an unlimited amount of appetite for local compute performance.
2: I think that's a really important point. We shouldn't lay them out in opposition since the internet and data centers came along. And actually since before that, right, when we had client server architectures, we expected very much less of our client than we did about the server. And you'll remember Oracle coming out with its devices and the Oracle Power Browser in the uh, in sort of 97, 98 time, which was an attempt to say, listen, we're going to try to shunt some of the intelligence back to the front. For me, it's really, the question is more about, as a product manager, what I think about is, what do I need in order to get the job done i'm slightly i'm not religious about whether the processing happens on the device or whether it happens on in the cloud what i'm religious about is the 500 millisecond hop time from the device to the cloud and back and if my application can afford that then i'll put it in the cloud and if my application can't afford that then i'll do it on the device so i think when we think about self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles you know i've heard some slightly bizarre things where Some vendors have said in Europe have said, we need 5G in order to have autonomous vehicles. And I'm sitting there thinking, Christ, if your autonomous vehicle relies on high bandwidth, I'm not getting it. In fact, I'm not going anywhere near the road that has a car on it that requires bandwidth in order to know where to go next.
1: I don't want any critical safety system that requires some level of reception, (laughs) given my experience with wireless technologies. I think the way to square the thing is, I think what's happened is enterprise computing has definitely migrated toward the cloud. That makes sense, right? It's not a device, it's just computing, managing a set of data and a set of enterprise computing resources. But devices, especially consumer devices and endpoints, those have always been just about devices and you want a cloud connectivity to make them work together. At least that's kind of how I square it.
2: I think that's a really good way of describing it. The thing that is slightly different is, and I think this comes out of what Google has tried to do with federated learning with TensorFlow and what Apple has done, with its federated learning and its kind of privacy enclaves within the device is it's two things really, is how do we respect the fidelity of the privacy relationships you have with your data? Number one. And number two is how do we give you a great user experience in a way that isn't really expensive? So I think from an engineering perspective, it makes a lot of sense to want to do scene recognition and scene description and and all those other things on the device, because the Android device or the iPhone is not doing anything overnight. Do you really want to move hundreds of megabytes of data up to your cloud, process it there, and send, send model updates back? I don't think you do. So there are lots of very good and sensible reasons why you just put it on the edge. And I think the reason I made that point about where will the locus of intelligence lie, will it be in the cloud and the edge, what I perhaps I didn't say was so many more of the things that we are going to be using are going to look a lot like iPhones. In other words, they're going to have sensors and outputs and really powerful processors. So our cars will have them, our toasters will have them, our TVs already do. And once you start to do that and you have that that processing capacity and that storage locally, it would make sense to use it. What's happened in the growth is that relatively speaking, we've added a lot of these multi-teraflop devices in our pockets. They've just been in our pockets, but we're going to be sitting in them in the next five years as well.
1: That's a very exciting future. Kind of reminds me of the original PlayStation 3 architecture idea that Ken Kutaragi put out where every device will have its processing and you can use them almost like a local cloud of computation. Azim, it's been fantastic talking to you. Where can our listeners find your work and how can they receive your newsletter?
2: Well, I would be delighted if they did. They just have to type exponential view into their search engine of choice, which I'm sure is Dot go for ARK Invest uh, listeners, but it might also be Google or even Bing, but it'll work for all of them. Exponential view, and you'll find me at the top link and come through and subscribe. I'd love to have you as a reader.
1: Awesome. I would encourage everyone to do so. Azeem's newsletter is the best, I think, at making sense of not just where technology is headed, but how it intersects with uh, all the other disciplines where it ultimately will have to intersect. Azeem, thank you for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure, James. Thank you.